0: Welcome to the Fitness and Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Kennedy, and I'm here to help you become the very best version of yourself. What's up, guys? Welcome back to this week's episode of the Fitness and Lifestyle Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Australian basketball legend, Andrew Bogut. Andrew started his career here in Melbourne. He then went and played college basketball in Utah before being drafted as the number one draft pick in the NBA to the Milwaukee Bucks in 2005. He's also played with Golden State Warriors, the Dallas Mavericks, the Cleveland Cavaliers, Los Angeles Lakers, and then finished his career here in the NBL with the Sydney Kings. This is a very enjoyable chat and one that I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, I know you guys are going to take a lot of value from it. So if you do, please do take a screenshot of the episode and post it on your Instagram story for me, tag myself, tag Andrew, and then also check out his new podcast, which we chat about in today's episode called Rogue Bogues. It's a great one, really interesting, um, and again, I know you guys are going to love it. So for now, just sit back and hope you enjoy today's episode. Andrew, welcome to the Fitness and Lifestyle Podcast, mate. It's an uh, absolute pleasure to have you on today, man.
1: Thank you, appreciate it.
0: Mate, I was chatting to you um, just just before we started. Obviously, you've recently joined the, the podcasting world with um, Rogue Bogues. We'll touch on that a little bit um, later on, mate, but... The first thing that I kind of you know usually with guests I don't really write anything down, but there was a number of things I really wanted to touch on today and and I also put up a um a story on socials last week for people to send through some questions, and we got some pretty some pretty good ones. won't ask all of them but um but the first thing I had in mind, mate was what was the initial reaction, the initial feeling when you you were picked in the number one as the number one draft pick in two thousand and five in the n b a
1: um I mean just it was kind of. It happened so quickly, to be honest with you, because I mean, my people that know my journey to get into the professional ranks was it all happened in a small amount of time. Um, I went from, you know, under, under 18s, not making a state team, getting cut to within a three year period, basically being drafted number one in the NBA. So it was that block of work finally, you know, worked itself out, um, but as far as the feeling of going number one, it was, I knew I'd said history, um, first Australian ever um, to, to do that. and my family there and people that were with with me throughout my childhood was real special. But once it was called, you know, when you're called number one, it all just, it's gone. That night's gone. Whereas, you know, sometimes people that pick eight, nine, ten, they can really live up to the suspense of it. Whereas it kind yeah. of happened to me straight away. So I was pretty fortunate. And then basically went, to the back of the room there past David Stern did interviews with about 15 or 20 different media stations that were set up and then went and party really. I mean, um, when celebrated and it was the first time I let my hair down in a number of years. Um, uh, and then was on a private jet the next morning to Milwaukee. So uh, it's the NBA schedule is full on. And, and once that kind of got rolling, there was no looking back.
0: What a whirlwind. I mean, that's, um, that's incredible. And, I was thinking as well, like you know, you mentioned how that kind of the period from you know missing out on state teams and stuff like that to then all of a sudden being the number one draft pick, to a quite a short short period of time there, that time frame. So, do you think that helped in any way with not having as much expectation or not having as much um, not doubt in your mind, but I guess pressure on yourself to do exceptionally well when you came into the NBA, or was the fact that you went number one, the fact that you were the first Aussie to do it? was there just a shitload of pressure and did did you feel that and did it kind of affect you in any way coming into your first season
1: from the australian point of view, no. i mean basketball wasn't as big as it is now at least the nba wasn't so yeah. for australian journalists and people there they didn't really understand how um, how big it was at the time and yeah it was pressure you're, you're the number one pick every rookie's trying to try to punch you that you're playing against and, and, and play better than you um there's veterans that are going to test you the stars that are going to test you and I've been on record to say I probably wasn't physically ready for the NBA that year. Um, And that was just because I weighed, at that time, I weighed something that I had to kind of work to. So I ended up going out there, getting drafted, knowing that I'm not completely ready to play. But I'd be silly to go back for another year of, of college and hurt my stock, potentially get injured. God knows what can happen, right? So... I went in there with an open mind knowing that I had to work on my body and I had a relatively good year. I reached nine and a half and seven, seven rebounds. So not, not horrible by any means, but not setting the world on fire. And then I kind of every year after that, I got better and better.
0: How much of a difference was there in the physical preparation side of things from college ball coming into the NBA? You obviously said that physically you probably felt like you weren't ready, but how much work went in in the NBA compared to the work you're putting in in college?
1: It was, to be honest, it wasn't that much different. Um, it was just, I hadn't grown into my body yet. You know, I was real a real late developer, um, real late, like could barely grow facial hair till my, my mid to late. So <laughs> like, um, didn't have hair on my legs till I was 18, 19 years old. I developed really, really late. I just don't think I was fully developed to, even if I would have smashed the weight room at, you know, freshman year or sophomore year in college and I was 19, 20, I just couldn't hold her on. Um, I still remember yeah. where my freshman year, our coach was adamant on Rick Majerus, who was one of the hardest nose coaches to ever coach in college. And they were always one of the big guys to put on weight. And I, I could not put on weight. I just could not hold weight And because we are training so much. It was kind of like anything I'd worked on in the weight room and the meals were going out the window with a three-hour training session. So he used to make guys, the weights coaches <laughs> used to make guys try and drink the, protein shakes they had the pre-mixed ones i'll call it metrics or, yeah. or some shit like that back in the day and um Are
0: in the states yeah
1: yeah i remember they would weigh you after a weight session and you have a target weight every week so if you were 220 i'm going to talk in pounds now for the aussies which is roughly 100 kilos so if you were 220 they'd say well by the end of the week you to be 225 so make sure you get your meals in so on that friday if you were like 222 they'd make you drink <laughs> so what is that basically half a half, half a pound cans you know five or six cans to hit weight um that's how crazy it was like it's doing that these days you'd be an absolute moron but that's just what they did and yeah i just referenced that because i just could not hold weight um my body wasn't ready to hold weight and then as i slowly, slowly grew from a man to a, to, to a teenager to, to, to a young man um you know i started to be able to hold the weight and then by my second third year i got up to 240 250 260 and then i peaked at around 260 throughout
0: my career which is roughly you know 118 kilos yeah cool i want to i'll come back to the physical side of things really soon because i've got some specific stuff i wanted to touch on but outside of the weight stream and outside of the physical preparation side of things who was kind of your biggest influence um on the actual basketball on court side of stuff um in your first few years in the nba
1: Oh, there was numerous people, um, and I kind of I wasn't really one of those guys that had one specific person. I kind of yep. will try to take positives from different people. Um, so my rookie, they they signed a guy named Irvin Johnson, not Irvin Magic Johnson, but a different Irvin Johnson who played center for the Seattle Science back in the day, and not that old. A,
0: yeah, just an old, <laughs> just an old
1: old veteran that they basically signed to try and mentor me, and he was a great help um, as far as I remember sitting on the back of the bus and we'd be flying into Minnesota or wherever. And he would, he would go through the scanning report. So he'd basically asking me questions about, you know, the big that I'm matching up with, this is what he does. He likes to go this way. He likes to shoot this hook shot in this spot. And, and he'd do that every, every kind of trip. And um, that was something I kind of passed on to younger fellows when I got older. And that's kind of what you do as, as a, as an older veteran. And he taught me a lot about that. So he was a guy that really helped me in my, my rookie year, just to transition. Um, and then it was just, you know, Brian Gordon was pretty instrumental um, early on in my career, just playing with the national team and giving me the confidence and the time, um, especially at a real young age. when I trained with the Victoria Titans. We're now defunct, but I trained with them as a young fella. So there's numerous people. It wouldn't just be one person. And I think, yeah. I think that's what it's about today. I think um, the athletes that take, you know, there's pros and, pros and negatives to every coach you have. There's things you're going to hate and things you're going to like. But being able to take positives from many different sources i think helps you better your game no matter you know kind of no matter what sport you you're playing and sometimes it's you know Luke longley helped me a little bit towards the end of my career because he's more in the holistic way of coaching where it's very mental and you know the chi and the centering yourself and that kind of side of things and sometimes you make a point and you're like well that's that's right maybe that shouldn't be bothering me as much as it is so you know, it just goes to, to show that even some of the stuff you wouldn't think helps you. You can, you can take 1, 2, 5% of that from someone and, and put it in your box and then help you get better.
0: Is the mindfulness and mental health side of things, is that something that you did put much of an emphasis on throughout your career? And was there, you know, obviously being on the road an 82-game season and, and potentially playoffs as well, it's a very long season. So is there some form of routine that you, you try to stick to most days when you wake up, considering that you're going to be all over um, all over the USA and, and chopping and changing from where you are, um, sleeping from night to night? So is there something that you did to kind of center yourself and bring yourself back to... Um, you know I guess put your put yourself in the same kind of habit every single morning.
1: I think routine just does that to you naturally if you if you try to keep your routine I think it um, gets you set for your day or your week or your month so I probably wasn't as much as I should have um, involved in the mental mental side of of, of the game um, you know when you're young and dumb you don't know any better and you probably wish you would have probably done a little bit more but going back to the way the NBA schedule is sometimes there's just no time for it like it's oh. the schedule is nothing that anyone can imagine it's getting in at two three in the morning you know go to bed um, get off a plane go to bed go to a hotel have a meeting the next morning have a game that night get on a bus off a bus on a flight and, and that's that's your life basically for eight nine months a year and Sometimes it's it's a good thing because you just don't have time to stop and think. Um, as I got yeah. older, you have a little bit more time to, to, to think that. And sometimes it can be a hindrance, to be honest with you, because you, then you, you overthink things at times. Um, and that's where the mental yep. health side of things comes in play. Whereas early in my career, you know, like an example for me would be, um, my, like, I'm not a bad flyer now, but I don't love flying. Early in my career, like we could have. You know, plane could have been almost going down and I couldn't give two shits. Um, and it almost did twice as a young fella in the NBA. Whereas towards the end of my career, I would be sitting up and tightening the seatbelt. Um, yeah. And that's because the older I got, the more I overthink think things and, and it just, yeah, it just spirals and then you, you're kind of in your own head. So that would be a prime example of yeah, the way things change. And everyone goes through that, no matter what industry you're in or no matter how. Rich or powerful or poor, and have no money. Whatever, like everyone goes through those battles, right?
0: Hundred percent. And was that a positive view? I mean, you look at um, sporting leagues such as the NBL and the AFL. Here, you have a bad game, and you've pretty much got a week to think about it. And particularly in the AFL, um, you know, especially in Victoria, it's all over the news. It's all in the papers. It's everything. All everyone talks about for a whole week. You go sit there and kind of, kind of just dwell on it for that for the whole week. Was it good in the NBA, knowing that? You know, if you did have a shit game, you've probably got a game the next day or in the next couple of days anyway to come back out and refocus and and come out and kind of prove yourself there and just move on from it. Spot on. Yeah, no doubt.
1: And and when I first got in the NBA, I'd take losses really hard, really, really hard. And um, yep. a couple a veteran pulled me aside and said, Man, we've we'll got another one tomorrow. Like mm. dwell on it, the rule generally was dwell on it that night. Maybe the next morning, if you don't have a game, address the the problems and then move on to that next opponent. And that's the whole the next man up next game up mentality um, when I played in the NBL the last couple of years I hated I hated losing if we had two games on a weekend and I lost that second game I hated it because you just wanted you wanted to get to that next week and have a good game and have that good feeling and that kind of messes with you mentally as well it's the ups and downs of the season and you know you might be in a bit of a worse mood with the family and friends that whole weekend yeah. but, to a next game um, but when you win you feel much better so it definitely makes a difference and that's a good thing the good thing and the bad thing about the NBA is you might get a little niggle or get hurt you've got a game the next day that sucks oh. but from a mental point of view you have a, a shocking game you get ejected you go 0 for 10 you don't <laughs> make a shot you have a chance to then
0: score 30 the next night and no one remembers that night before Guys just a very quick interruption in today's episode to let you know that today's show is brought to you by Australia's hype sneaker label Athletic It's worn by sports stars and celebrities all across the country. You guys can use the code DK10 for 10% off your first pair. They originated here in Melbourne and this brand is just going out of control and I'm very, very happy to have them as a sponsor for today's episode. And sticking on the mental side of things, you've played with some pretty unbelievable players. Um, Obviously, you're an incredible player yourself. And what do you see as a bit of a pattern or... um, yeah I guess a pattern amongst the players that that are exceptional players night in night out season after season on the mental side of things outside of just having skills on the court and maybe physically they're a really good athlete what's the mental difference between those that are just exceptionally good players and that aren't afraid to put up that final shot every single game and if they have missed the last kind of five in a row what is that difference
1: I don't think there's one thing every every elite player I've played with is completely different i've I've had <laughs> elite players that are the most OCD organized on and off the court, everything, you know, they, they do everything to perfection. Um, I've had teammates that are elite at what they do and off the court, their lives are absolute shambles. Um, mm. You know, so I don't think there's one pattern you think there would be, but there isn't. Some of these elite yep. guys, just you're just like, man, like you're just a talented, great basketball or football or whatever, but then they couldn't organize their life to get to a doctor's appointment on time, you know, and um, <laughs> that's just, there's a mix it's mixed and and most of the guys I played with like Steph Curry's one he's just um, most things that he does um, he'll pick up very very quickly especially fine motor skills and almost within a day or two you know um, it could be something as silly as throwing a piece of paper in a rubbish bin you know and just um, that's just how he's how he works and his cortex works and he just picks it up quickly whereas some people are really good at basketball and talented but anything else kind of there's an awkwardness. Um, so everyone, everyone's kind of different. Um, as far as the mental approaches, I mean, the one thing I guess you'd see with with the guys that were elite is that the time they put in away from the game um, is, and when no one's watching is generally as kind of intense and aggressive as a game. Um, yeah. That, that kind of not letting things from the court and the business side of basketball affect them as much some some are ignorant to it completely and some just don't let them doesn't doesn't bother them you know um whereas for me it got bothered me through different phases of my career just you know the human element um of our business in the nba is, is pretty toxic at times uh, with the money involved so that's where the elite can kind of knuckle down and just just block all that out
0: you mentioned you mentioned Steph Curry there. We watch him, you know, on TV and on the court and he just does some just unbelievable things, just stuff where you just fucking, you put your game sliders up on NBA 2K and you still probably couldn't make the fucking shots he makes. What's, uh, you know, the stuff that we see on TV, is that the type of shit that he's doing each day at training? Like, were there days, you know, obviously you train with him over and over again. Is there stuff that he would do in training where you would just, like, be like, wow, like, this is just crazy? And is he practicing a lot of that shit that he's doing Day in, day out on the court?
1: Yeah, I mean the the full court shots and stuff like that, he really sort of you know, he puts a lot of time in that, but he puts a lot of time into the simple stuff as well. And that's what people don't see. People see Steph doing shooting from the logo, pregame warm-ups, all that stuff, but he does a lot of the simple stuff too and spends a lot of time on that. So you can't get from point A to, you know, let's let's call logo shots. G, without doing everything in between. And that's where kids are getting lost. Like they want to go into high school now and pull up on the break from just over half court. It was like, well, Steph wasn't always doing that. You know, yeah. he, was, he was working his way to being able to shoot off the dribble. Then it was being able to take a sidestep, then a sidestep back, then pull up two feet behind the three, then pull it up three feet, then get into the logo. So everything's progression and he puts a lot of time into his craft. Albeit he is... Just like I said, naturally talented in what he does. You can just see he's, he's got it. He's one of those people that has it. But he's also put in a shitload of work. Um, and that's where sometimes people people that just say, oh, he was born to play basketball. That's ever really the case with any athlete. You yeah. still put a lot of the time and effort in. Now you can be favoured with good genes. You can be favoured with um, you know, just knowing how to play to an extent. But that usually comes from them watching a lot of their specific sport as a young fella picking up that IQ and just constantly learning um, people that think you're kind of born no matter what you look like, no matter what your bloody composition is. And you're just born to do that. I, I don't really buy into that that much. I think, you know, Kevin Durant for instance. Yeah. Great. He's been born with a perfect basketball body, but she's still putting a lot of work. I mean, he's putting yeah. a lot of time and effort into his craft and he's doing things that guys his size shouldn't be as per se doing. So, um, there's no secret that with professional athletes, you know, 99% of them don't just roll around by talent.
0: Back to the physical side of thing. I mean, that's, that's some awesome points there back to the physical side of things you know, the very significant injury that you had um, early on with the elbow. Was the elbow, the first major one?
1: Yeah. The first like one that, yeah, really rocked me. Yeah,
0: really sure. rocked you. Yeah, how yeah. much of an impact do you think that had on, say, the extent of your career in the NBA? Um, the difference it had on your whole physical preparation side of things, and and do you think um, you know your career would have looked any different, um, or or different at all if that injury didn't happen?
1: Yeah, there's a, obviously you can always look back, and one small thing can can change. Um, the trajectory of, of where you've been and what you've done. Um, but elbow for me was a big one because I felt like individually that year, that was my career numbers-wise, 16 and 10, and really started to play well defensively, like really started to understand how to protect mm-hmm. the basket. And Scott Scott was, was great in teaching me I need to be held accountable defensively. Um, so yeah, it's it was a hard one. It was a hard pill to swallow for me. Like I said, number one pick first year wasn't didn't set the world on fire and then gradually got better and then was averaging do a double double the next couple of seasons and then finally got to that point where I felt like you know I was I was up there with the big men in the league, right? Top five, top ten, whatever you want to call it. So to have that taken away with that elbow sucked and it was because it was my right arm. Um it really wreaked a bit of havoc with my touch, um, i not gonna lie. And I mean, yeah. I shot threes in college at times, I was shooting jumpers in the NBA at that point. I felt confident going both ways and then I rushed back from that injury. I did it in um, I think I did it in March and it should have been a nine or 12 month though, with everything that I did. I, I broke my index finger, broke my wrist, I think on both sides, um, broke my elbow. Hyper extended my elbow, had a bone chip in there, and then I was back on the court training camp in September. So, Shit. I, yeah, I, I just I shouldn't have been back on the court at that point. But my legs were fine, everything was fine, and that whole season I basically played left handed. Like, I couldn't couldn't go right, really. Couldn't even like hold an armbar up in the post defensively with my right elbow. So I hit mm-hmm. it as I could, and I still still ended up averaging a double double that year. And I think I led the league in blocks and still had a good year individually, but. A new portion of my game was was kind of missing, and I just couldn't really get it back. And then confidence started to play an issue, and um, it was just one of those things I had to kind of adapt to. Yeah. But you look at that injury, and then bouncing back from that, then doing my ankle really bad, getting undercut by Kyle, Kyle Lowry, in Houston, snapping my ankle. If those two things don't happen, I probably end up in Golden State. So, yeah, you know, my trade value. Everything was, happens for a reason. Yeah, I you know they told me they weren't going to trade me. Before I did my ankle, I, I was like, look, I want to try, try to explore some trade options. And they said, we're not going to get fair value back. Good big man. We're not going to get someone back that can fill your shoes, so we're not moving you. And then two weeks later, I broke my ankle. And all of a sudden, they thought, shit, like, if we can get someone back that's going to at least play the rest of the season, we'll got a chance to make a playoff push. GM was in the hot seat, coach was in the hot seat, and it all just lined up that I ended up getting bounced to golden state, which I didn't play for the rest of that season. They sucked yep. record wise. So it didn't matter. And then ended up being part of one of the most successful teams in NBA, NBA history and won a championship. So that, that's what I mean by one small change. Mm. Maybe I end up being an all-star and never winning a championship. Um, yeah. And then we'll walk you with no injuries, but I'd rush rather the championship ring, cause I, I feel like no one really remembers a random all-star from one or two years they remember championship team, and a team that won, you
0: know, seventy three games. Yeah, I mean, I'm a massive believer in that everything happens for a reason. Um and yeah, I think you've kind of just touched on my you've already answered my next question, but um that's the elbow and the big injuries they're obviously the low points of the career, but what has been the highest point of your career, the moment that'll always kind of stick in your mind as the most memorable thing um as your time as a as a basketballer?
1: Winning a championship in the NBA is not easy. There's there's thirty what is it? 450 players, and there's one group that gets it every year. And let's be honest, generally that in the, going to from the preseason, there's probably four, maybe five teams that genuinely have a shot. So I was on that other 25 team in Milwaukee, generally where we knew like a playoff berth for us was fantastic.
0: And yeah,
1: <laughs> anything beyond that, we're we'll kind of dreaming. So that's number one. But the thing I'm most proud of is just just getting to a point where I played. 14 years in the NBA, two in the NBL, with the injuries that I had, um, yeah. I was back from every one of them just as hard as I could, and still was a pretty, you know, capable player towards the end of my career. Where probably the last three, four years of my career, like I couldn't, it was a struggle um, just to, to tend to daily life, let alone play basketball against grown men. So I'm proud of that. You know, I told twice almost the elbow. The doctor's like, "Yeah, no, we don't know if you're gonna." Be able to kind of shoot a basketball properly again. Yeah, uh, that one I bounced back from. Then the ankle was the, the bad one. The ankle one was basically uh, we don't think yeah you might not play much more after this ankle injury. And once I heard that from Dog, I was like, geez, like and and I almost retired. Um, about a year after the surgery, just couldn't get it right. Kept swelling, and yes, yeah. kept, kept kind of pushing. And that's what people don't see was that daily. Uh, rehab and physio and swelling and frustration and cold baths and massage and acupuncture and PRP. I tried everything under the sun to get this thing right. Yeah. Like, almost 16, 17, 18 months, it would blow up and kept blowing up and kept blowing up. And I almost hung them up and persisted through and, and I'm glad I did because I ended up winning a championship and then came back in Australia. I was pretty successful here. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm real proud of the fact that I kind of was against the odds when you consider the injury history that I had.
0: Yeah, it's incredible. Such a an unbelievable career, and coming back to Australia with the Kings, you know, how did you, how do you see basketball in Australia at the moment? Um, are you happy with where it's at? Um, happy with how the progression is coming from? You know, uh, the juniors up into the professional ranks and and the league where the league is at at the moment in the NBL.
1: I think the league's in a really good place, competition wise. I think there's never been a more competitive time for us to have the opportunity to have guys like Lamello Ball and. And now this year, Josh Giddey and uh, former NBA players are now, instead of going to Europe, are now looking to come out here. I mean, um, yeah. it's a very stable league to an extent. It, it, you know you're going to get paid on time. You know, the wins and losses don't matter um, when it comes to your paycheck. Whereas in Europe, Greece, wherever, like you you lose three straight and your paycheck doesn't show up for a couple of months. And that's just the reality <laughs> of what you're dealing with. Oh. So you sign a $1 million contract over there, but you might not get most of it. You might get half of it. Whereas in Australia, it's a little bit less money on paper, but I always tell guys, you're going to get that money that's on paper, right? So as far as that goes, it's good. Um, very competitive. And, you know, nine teams will be 10 next year with the Tasmanian franchise coming in. So it's great. But, I mean, I, I'm always cognizant of, of, I don't want great. I want excellent. I want above. I want elite. And I think the uh, we have all the tools to do that. But, you know, at times you got to, you know, give the admin and the people running the league a kick up the ass, which I'm not afraid to do, and it gets me in some flack. But there's some things that are non-negotiables that need to be bettered. Um, but they've also done some good things. You know, Larry Kesselman has invested a shitload of money. You know, he's he, he basically poured his own money in five, six, seven years ago now to make sure the league was running properly. But we can't sit on that now for the next seven years. think yeah. need to give him hugs for it. We gotta, we gotta, you know of the league and, and make sure that it's it's the clear num, number two after the NBA you know, right now euro is probably just ahead of the NBL, um but we want we want to be that number two we want to be right out there with Euro league and, and you know we need to you know fix a few things along the way
0: what do you think uh, at the moment are some of the main things that need to improve for that for that to be the uh, clear cemented second spot to the NBA
1: I just just lifting the level of professionalism on a daily basis um, yep there's, there's small things Like right now There's a bit of an issue or well not Not a bit of an issue A big issue With the decals on the floor um, Where the sponsorship decal mm. Logos It seems like One or two games a weekend That it's just a shit show Of guys Basically becomes a, An ice skating rink Where guys are going down Left right and centre And it's been an issue For three or four years now And
0: With no change
1: Yeah I mean The changes is the same old stuff oh, We're going to try to clean it better Well you know it's, I don't think it's a cleaning issue I think there's There's other issues That need to be looked at And Instead of trying to rectify it on the fly, get rid of the shit, then go do your own your own thesis or study on it in a private court somewhere and figure it out. But mm. at the moment, you're using world class athletes as guinea pigs. You know, my concern um, is a Josh Biddy or a Lamelo Ball, for instance. Last year, they do their knee like you don't want that hard on ESPN. You don't want yeah. You know, yeah. And then now that it's public record, that the decals are a little bit dangerous. But we're at a point where they you know, they're scared to address it because there's money coming in from those logos. But you've got to be forward-thinking, you know, in my opinion. I think that, um, you know, you can, if there's a sponsor that, that's got their logo on the court, you go to them and you say, hey, we're going to give you three extra player appearances this season and we're going to put your logo in five other spots instead of the court because it's a safety issue. Most, most most sponsors are going to understand that. If you're a sponsor, yeah. you want DK Fitness on the floor and someone on their ACL, yeah, exactly right.
0: Not right. at all. So yeah, that's where the frustration
1: lies. And Larry can run the league how he sees fit, but I mean, I feel like um, we have to have people that are willing to comment on, on how we better the league. And I don't think that's you know it gets lost sometimes when people think I'm shitting on the league. Couldn't be further from the truth. I want the league to get from from great to fucking great, right? I want it to yeah. be. I want to be that league. And if you just keep patting each other on the back, saying, "Well, thanks, Larry. You invest a lot of money for the next ten years. You're just going to be right here." You know, you're going to be behind yeah, yeah. NFL in the NRL forever, and yeah, I want, I want to get high in the AFL, the NRL one day.
0: That's awesome. I appreciate that. Appreciate the honesty there, and I'm very mindful of your time, um, Andrew. So I won't hold you up for much longer. But there's a couple more things I want to touch on in the um, the mix of players that we've got in the NBA at the moment, um, specifically the Australian players. Who do you see as a potential next guy to make it over in the NBA? Well, Josh Kitty is the
1: number one option right now. He um, young, very talented, high basketball IQ, knows how to play, uh, and I think he'll be, don't know where he'll be drafted, I hope it's you know, somewhere in that first round, and a little inconsistent right now, but he's, he's young and he's learning the game, and he's with a rookie, not a rookie coach, but a first year coach in, in Adelaide at the moment, so he's gone through trials and tribulations, which is great, testament to having potential first round picks or second round picks come over here, because I think it um, gives them enough adversity that Scouts can can then yeah. say, this kid's faced a lot more adversity than just the kid going to his hometown college. So Josh Giddey would be the one right now for me that I think um, has a genuine chance to, to not only get drafted, but play in the NBA.
0: Awesome. Uh, before we before we go on to just a couple of these questions off um, off socials here, um, I wanted to touch on the the podcast. Um, so Rogue Brokes, how's that been going? Um, you know, what can people expect from it for those that haven't tuned in before you know, where can I find it? And, and yeah, like what's what's uh, your plan with the show and, and what type of stuff you want to be talking about on a weekly basis?
1: Yeah, at Rogue Bogues on all social media platforms. So pretty simple. You know, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. Um, and then it's basically on all good, you know, podcast uh, platforms. But there's, there's links on all the socials that pull up a page that basically... They give you Google Podcasts. They give you Apple Podcasts, wherever you want to watch it. I'll have, so, that,
0: um, I'll have that link in the show notes as well. So everyone that's tuned in, they'll, you'll be able to go to the show notes and find out super easy.
1: Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. But um,
0: yeah, I guess just being able to
1: kind of have my own voice that's not PR produced by a network or by a boss. I can kind of talk about what I want to talk about, sometimes controversial, sometimes not, sometimes things I'm passionate about. And the good thing about the podcast is we've got kind of different different kind of topical podcasts. So we have a weekly basketball show that's just current events. We do a and A through that. So a lot of fans get to ask sometimes unique, controversial, wacky, whatever questions, we're open to it all. Uh, the point of that one is to give real behind the scenes NBA stories for the most part about examples of something going on now about when I was there, interacting with what I dealt with that when I was there and just giving honest takes. We're not trying to be clickbait controversial but at times we are controversial because we're, we're very blunt and truthful Then there's the my journey portion of the podcast which is uh done better than i thought it would because it's specific to, to, to kind of my journey um and it's yes. basically i want to do a an order what an autobiography in a book would read like the via podcast so cool starts with being born childhood primary school high school all the way and it's going to end with retirement right so we're we're into episode four, and that was just my freshman year in college, so I'm slowly getting those out. I have guests along the way. That's and cool. A lot of feedback from a lot of juniors and stuff um, that have listened to it and parents, because a lot of people don't know kind of the trials and tribulations of my career. And then we just launched a car chat as well. I'm passionate about cars and automobiles. i doing it with a friend of mine, just talking about mainly the Australian muscle car market and what's going on. So just, just being able to have the freedom to be able to talk about whatever I want to talk about, produce it, and chuck it online, and... Some stuff gets huge numbers and some stuff doesn't, and then we can kind of adapt from there. But we're about to hit 100K listens total, you know, within the first, what are we, two and a half, three months, which is pretty that's good. Awesome. So, yeah, I ho- hope goal for me is to get to a million by the end of the year. So I'm working towards that, and that's a goal I've set for myself. So hopefully we can get there. But, um yeah, just, just an honest, no PR-proofed podcast.
0: Awesome. I mean... I think everybody that's tuned into today's episode um, after hearing what they've heard today would be more than interested in, to come and check it out. So um, like I said, I'll have the link in in the show notes for you, man. So a few questions just to wrap up. Just This is just a few things I took off um, a social media uh, story I put up, just people asking questions. No worries. Um, so the first one is, uh, who is the best shit talker in the NBA? Oh,
1: the best shit talker in the NBA? Well, one of my former teammates, Draymond Green's, probably the, the current... Best and, and biggest shit talker and he's just passionate dude so he's going to get into anyone and their mum and their auntie and their cousin and <laughs> yeah. he loves to, to to get into guys and sometimes he's doing it to fire himself up people don't realise that yeah poor game and he'll get into it with someone get a double technical trying to rev himself up um, former player would be Kevin Garnett yeah that dude did um, he talked to anyone as well he talked to guys in the stands guys whoever it was right so I got into it with KG a fair bit because I, I didn't want to take his shit, in though he was a superstar. But those two guys are probably the, the biggest ones that come to mind.
0: You're uh, you're obviously pretty active on Twitter yourself. So, what's been like the funniest Twitter insult you've ever received from from just a random keyboard warrior? Oh, man, it'd be.
1: I've had so many. Like, I get you know, I get a lot. I mean, I don't know if it was the funniest, but commented on the Mac Horton Horton swimming escapade many years ago or about two years ago now and um, made fun of the Chinese swimmer whatever whatever his name is I forgot uh, Sun Tzu (laughs) something like that but he um, yeah basically got death threats got everything under the sun and then forgot that the end of 2019, I was playing in the World Championship national team, which happened to be in That's, China.
0: I remember watching that. That um, was
1: full on. It was full on. Like I was getting people sending memes of uh, of uh, pigs with my head on it, uh, dogs with my head on it. Like you know, so some of the stuff was pretty funny. Um, but you know, I got got a little bit serious at times. You know, we had to kind of contact uh, the authorities because I got a few death threats before I was going over there and whatnot. But the Dog stuff, Photoshop. Some of the Photoshop's they did were just so bad that they were funny, right? So it's just like a three year old, you know, could have done it <laughs> cut and paste. Kind of what made it funny.
0: That's awesome. Um, and I had a fair few requests actually. If uh, just a few guys wondering if you'd be able to fill in for their domestic team in uh, basketball sometime during the week if you get some free time. Yeah, I get a I lot of I imagine interviews. that'd be at the top of your priority list.
1: Unless it's a wheelchair <laughs> teammate. probably not.
0: <laughs> and then the last one here, man. Um I so I grew up playing basketball in Horsham. Um so I've I've been lucky to play with a few of the a guys. You've boy. been lucky to yeah. play with um so like Shawnee and Aaron and, and Creaky and that. So Sean uh sent in a question asking who's the best Horsham player you've ever played with? The best
1: Horsham player. His brother was really good, man. Aaron Bruce was he was a he was, a, he was a killer junior player, man. Like, he was – it was basically him and I from Victoria coming through, like, under-20s, and he was – I hated playing against him, and then we both got scholarships to the AAS. And I remember our training sessions at the AIS we were the most – probably two of the most competitive dudes on that team, and we'd be always on the opposite team. Our coaches would structure it that way, and we'd be going at it. Um, and he was he was a killer. He, he could shoot, shoot and he could pass, get to the free throw line. Went to Baylor for a number of years. He kind of got screwed around there a little bit towards the end of his – um, tenure there they over-recruited him a little bit um, he led all freshmen in scoring his freshman year a lot of people don't know yeah. that and probably could have been late second round if he went went out to the draft maybe or somewhere around there so just a missed opportunity for him but came back to Australia never really solidified himself as a high-end professional but he was um, a very very well-respected player but Shawnee's sure, doing a great job I mean his story's a great one you know he basically no one I one wanted to touch him, you know, in our league. He was kind of floating all over the place, and then we gave him a chance. Will we we'll ever put him on the floor? And he's a consummate professional. I love him, love everything about him. Plays for the team, and he's had to work for everything that he has. So he's been good. And obviously, Creaky's doing what he's doing down in Southeast Melbourne. But out of those
0: three from juniors,
1: it would be Aaron for sure.
0: Awesome, man. Well, Andrew, man, it's been an absolute pleasure to uh, to chat to you today, mate. Um- very much appreciate your time um, today. And yeah, really looking forward to getting this one out there. And, and like I said, for everybody that's um, tuned into today's episode, make sure you go and check out Andrew's podcast. The link will be in the show notes below. Um, if you've enjoyed today's episode, please do take a screenshot of this episode and post it up on your Instagram story for us. Um, we'd love to get your feedback. But um, thanks a lot, man. Much appreciated. No
1: any Anytime. Thanks.